This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. July is all behind us now, but most of August is still ahead, which means that there's still plenty of summer and summer fun left to enjoy, including some vacation pastimes that are strictly for adults only. And no, these pastimes are not what you might think, as Luke Burbank will report in our cover story. An estimated million adults sent themselves away to summer camp last year to play, to learn, or to make their childhood fantasies a reality. I thought, what the heck, why not give it a shot now? You know, you're only 42 once. <laughs> summer camp, it's not just for kids anymore. A romantic comedy is playing out in real life with a wedded pair of comic actors in leading roles. This morning, Connor Knighton pays them a visit. She was a star on Will and Grace, and he made us laugh on Parks and Recreation. Okay, take him out and shoot him. But now, Hollywood power couple Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally have a new project. 
a stage show based on their unlikely romance. We think you'll find this little show we've put together is the greatest aphrodisiac known to man. Is it awkward to talk about your sex life on stage? Apparently not. Love in the Spotlight, later on Sunday morning. Relations between the United States and Cuba are turning over a new leaf. And so might the U.S. government's attitude toward Cuba's signature product, the cigar. Mark Strassman goes to the source. What gives Cuban cigars their mystique? For Americans, it's been the forbidden fruit for more than 50 years. That is on the verge of changing. United States is 45 minute flight. So it's very easy for, for our country to send cigars to the United States. Legal Cuban cigars. It's not smoke. Ahead on Sunday morning. Carl Reiner was one of TV comedy's founding fathers way back in the early 1950s. And all these years later, he has lost none of his talent for making people laugh. As we'll hear a little later when he meets up with our Tercy Smith. Welcome, America, and hi there, everybody. For Carl Reiner, being a comedy legend is great. Being a living legend, even better. Every once in a while, I go, yeah, there's a 115-year-old woman who went the other day, and she was driving till the last week of her life. So that feels good. When it's... It felt great. <laughs> How do you stay mentally sharp? I don't know. It's, it's a gift. It's a a gift. walk with Carl Reiner ahead this Sunday morning. No, you don't. Martha Teichner looks at still life photography on a grand scale. Mary Peterson shows us a starry, starry night. Moraka takes us out on a topless ride in a vintage convertible. I thought he was really funny. And then one day I was like, wait a minute, is he sexy? What's happening? Ahead, my plan was working. <laughs> a very funny love story. But first, how many times have you checked your phone since you've been here? Oh my God, <laughs> every 10 minutes, which is sad. For adults only. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Adults only may strike you as a bit odd as a policy for a summer camp until you realize that those adults are actually just kids at heart. Our cover story is reported now by Luke Burbank. Camp Wandawiga in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, looks like a place that time forgot. A place where childhood memories are made. Except for one not-so-minor detail. There aren't any kids here. And Reveille plays at the crack of 9.30, which still seems kind of early for many campers. Welcome to adult summer camp, where your inner child meets your outer grown-up. We were just hanging out here with our other friends who didn't have kids, and we were, you know, we used to joke about it. It was like being back at summer camp, except the camp counselors were gone and we had the keys to the liquor cabinet. David Hernandez and Teresa Surratt bought Wandawiga 10 years ago for a song. David grew up coming here when it was run by Latvian priests. It was just a place where kids could be kids and you could wander off into the woods and take a boat out and go swimming and do the kind of things that you just can't do growing up in the city. 
By the time David and Teresa bought it, though, it was in need of some serious TLC. It was like Blair Witch. <laughs> like all these abandoned buildings. My idyllic childhood memories were a little different than the reality of the place. It was I way think. different. I freaked out. I was so freaked out. These days, Wandawiga campers can kick back, canoe, shoot arrows, or learn to use a tomahawk. There it is. There it is. Basically, I just started marking where I stood and where I could actually hit the target. For camper Kristen Olson, it's not so much about reclaiming fond childhood memories as it is about replacing them. I did go to a Girl Scout camp once and it just did not go well for me. So I think I just kind of swore off camping in general. Nice. Is yeah. this camp going better for you? This is going much better for me, yeah. We always say that this is a place where people can disconnect to reconnect to the simple pleasures of simpler times. Well, disconnect kind of. How many times have you checked your phone since you've been here? Oh my God, <laughs> every 10 minutes, which is sad. You have no idea how many mobile uh, phones there must be in the bottom uh, of the lake. lake is, oh, <laughs> yeah. Sunglasses and cell phones. Yeah. In a way that actually seems to be a good thing, right? It's mother nature's payback for them yeah. to lose their cell phones in the lake. An estimated million adults sent themselves away to summer camp last year. Answering this new demand, a variety of offerings. Camps where grown-ups can learn to breathe, to sift through the sands of time, or even run away from zombies? I first picked up the bass a year ago, July. For Jeremy Schwartz, camp is about living his childhood fantasy of playing in a rock band. And I thought, what, what the heck? Why not, why not give it a shot now? Uh, you know, you're only 42 ones. <laughs> <laughs> By day, Jeremy's a librarian. But every Wednesday night this summer, he's been part of a Kinks cover band in Beacon, New York. And to be able to have that catharsis of just letting it out and, and yelling at, you know, the top of your lungs and jumping around and dancing, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's better, than, uh, better than therapy. When musician Stephen Clare founded the Beacon Music Factory, he thought it would mostly be for kids. When did the idea of having adults learning rock music and music in general when come to you? When the parents of our teen rock campers begged me to do it for them. Does anybody at the library know about this? <laughs> I'm not sure it's really their scene. It turns out, though, that slipping into another world to expand one's horizons in the summertime that's not a new idea. The Chautauqua Institution in western New York State was founded in 1874 as just such a place where people could take time out to pray, to play, and to learn. After the Civil War, there was a lot of concern about how leisure time was being used. And so there was a desire to find a way of spending your time in a more constructive way. Chautauqua historian and archivist John Schmitz People would learn a new hobby, a new sport, as well as take up uh, more formal forms of uh, education. And it was extremely popular. In the first assembly, over 20,000 people came for the two-week assembly here to Chautauqua Lake. So popular, in fact, that Chautauquas sprang up around the country, 250 at one point. And Chautauqua became a word in the dictionary. 
Things haven't changed all that much here in the last 140 years. Chautauquans attend poetry readings in the Hall of Philosophy. Time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. Listen to symphonies in the amphitheater. Plus, of course, enjoy plenty of outdoor activities. I have been coming here all my life. My parents met here. For Jack and Yvonne McCready, Chautauqua has been a way of life for more than half a century. This is where I learned to swim and to sail and played Little League Baseball and learned to play the piano and you know, all those kind of things. You can take classes, you can go to lectures, you can sit on the beach, you can sit on this porch. Uh, and children have club and all kinds of activities. So there is something for everybody, and this is one of the few places I think that you get that. Is this a good way to keep your brain young? Yes. You know, it I don't breathes know what... life into you. Hmm. Meanwhile, back in Wisconsin, another day of adult summer camp has come and gone at Wandawiga. On Monday, these campers will go back to their real lives. Back to office jobs and bills and the pressure of being a grown-up. For now, though, that all seems pretty far away. As more and more Americans seem to be figuring out, there's just something about s'mores and campfires and new best friends that make for an unforgettable summer, no matter what your age. Next, a capital design. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. August 2nd, 1754, 261 years ago today. Today, Pierre-Charles L'Enfant was born in Paris. Highly educated, he traveled to America in 1777 and served as a civil engineer in the Revolutionary Army. In 1791, President Washington commissioned him to plan the new capital city that was to rise on the banks of the Potomac River. L'Enfant's design called for a rectangular street grid intersected by a series of diagonal avenues named for the states. He gave Congress a home on top of what came to be known as Capitol Hill. While on the other side of town, he placed the official home for the president, just north of the broad park-like mall. L'Enfant died in 1825 at the age of 70, but his design for Washington, D.C. lived on, though with a few encroachments, among them a railroad station right in the middle of the mall the very station where President James Garfield would be assassinated in 1881. To improve matters, Congress in 1901 created the Macmillan Commission, a professional body that largely restored the mall to L'Enfant's original design, and which also developed the riverbank land that later became home to the Jefferson and Lincoln memorials. Today, Washington, D.C.'s layout is still basically as L'Enfant envisioned it. Let the roll out. With the National Mall serving as center stage for Fourth of July celebrations and 
other grand occasions. Just as we call George Washington the father of our country, perhaps we should call Pierre Charles L'Enfant the father of Washington, D.C. A hit. Is it art? Or breakfast? featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Many a wonderful still-life painting has been inspired by a fruit bowl like this one. Not to be confused with the still-life photographs that Martha Teichner will be taking us to see. Moscow, Idaho was named not for the city in Russia, but the one in Pennsylvania. Peculiar, right? So it should come as no surprise that Moscow, Idaho, is home to artist Roger Rowley, whose medium is fruit plates? Weird. Till you see them. When you see this, it's like an explosion. And then you say, wow. And that's sort of what I was imagining, to have this thing be overwhelming as a visual experience. Like a giant kaleidoscope or intricate stained glass windows. They're arranged starting from the earliest one in January is the upper left, and they go down through the columns all the way to the end of December. A calendar of color. It goes from relatively warm yellows and oranges into the deep, rich blues and dark berries. So there is this rainbow, and, and immediately that sense of the seasons is apparent. Up close, each one has an odd detail to reveal, or a story to tell. What's this one with this black blob at the top? My cat loves melon. It just happened to get right up there, right when I had the camera ready. And so I was like, fine, BB, here you go, snap. So why fruit plates? Ten years ago, when this all began, the answer was simple, to convince his kids to eat fruit. The rule he set for himself, nothing too fancy. I wasn't trying to pick the perfect fruit. I was trying to be true to what it is you buy in the store at the farmer's market. Those are a little sweeter, but I think... But the Saturday market in Moscow, Idaho, is loaded with some of the most luscious fruit imaginable. Do you ever look at the shapes and the colors of the things that are available um, in terms of this is my paint and these are my pigments? Yeah, I certainly am. Oh, the orange of an apricot will look amazing against the blue of a blueberry. The market just happens to be next to the gallery where the fruit plates were being shown. Look at that blood orange right there. People do make the connection between what's outside and what's inside. No accident, since Roger Rowley is its director. I think this is a true artist who can figure out how to make art out of their kids' breakfast plates. <laughs> that is the question after all. When does a plate of fruit stop being breakfast and start being art? I'd put it on the breakfast table and it would get eaten or not eaten and then began to just 
be more conscious about arranging it and going, well, let's make this look nice. Maybe then the kids will eat it more if they see this thing that looks aesthetically interesting. It was maybe at least a year of me doing that before I ever took a photograph. By then, Roger could see the whole project in his mind. Hundreds of fruit plates photographed in exactly the same way at his back door. He takes his pictures snapshot style, capturing shadows, reflections. The seasons, the weather, leave their signature on his work. You didn't go through any kind of agony of making art. Oh, no. No, it's very intuitive. I mean, you start with the natural forms, whether it's an apple or a pear or uh, apricot, and so you, you have these natural building blocks. Leaving one more question. When does a plate of fruit stop being art and start being breakfast? Ahead. Made in Cuba. But first... Look to your left. Now look to your right. One of these people will be going home with you tonight. That's a fact. Love played for laughs. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're still the same old Ron Swanson, and I will defeat you. I will defeat you right into my pants. Everybody go crazy! It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Megan Mullally and Nick Offerman won lots of laughs as a divorced couple with very sharp tongues on the TV comedy Parks and Recreation. Not at all like the romantic comedy that is their long-standing real-life marriage. This morning, they tell it all to Connor Knighton. First, people were like, I've discovered something, you guys are married. And I was like, yeah, that's not a secret. We've been married now already for many years. Nick and Megan, to your left. And Nick over this If you didn't know actors Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally were husband and wife. How are you guys today? You'd be forgiven. You're not likely to read about them in the gossip columns. We've been together for 15 years. That's like almost 200 years in Hollywood <laughs> marriage years. <laughs> But while their lives off-screen may lack drama, on screen they get plenty of attention for their comedy. Hi! Hi, honey! Great dress! Where are Fred and Ethel? <laughs> for eight seasons, Mullally portrayed sassy, brassy Karen Walker on Will and Grace. Hey, Poodle. Who's your daddy? You are. For seven seasons, Offerman played stoic, anti-government Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, which ended its run earlier this year. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Don't teach a man to fish and you feed yourself. He's a grown man. Fishing's not that hard. The story of their romance and how they became Hollywood's most unlikely power couple is the basis for their new comedic stage show, Summer of 69. He had to pass through like the seven levels of Dante's Inferno before he could achieve coitus with me. But now that he has... It's been a great six months. The show's really dirty. <laughs> yeah, is it awkward to talk about your sex life on stage? Apparently not. The show recently premiered in Oklahoma City, 
It was a bit of a homecoming for Malawi. Well, it's all your fault, Oklahoma City, because I'm from here. Where was your room? My room was right up there. I used to climb out that side window, right over here, and sit on that roof and smoke cigarettes. Were you a good kid overall? Yeah, I was. I smoked cigarettes, but I never really did a lot of drugs, and I was very virginal, and yeah, I was pretty good. That's all changed. <laughs> in 1998, Mullally's life was forever changed when she was cast in Will and Grace. Two years later, and already a star, her romantic life took a turn when she took a role in a small play in Los Angeles. On the first day of a, a new play, if you're a single actor, the very first thing that you do is scan the room to see which person in the cast you're going to have sex with. <laughs> I've been doing plays all wrong. <laughs> see, you, nobody ever told you that. This is the problem. One person she didn't initially notice was Offerman, who was also cast in the play. But he noticed her. There was a Beauty and the Beast element going on. There was also a sort of Eliza Doolittle situation where... You're Eliza in that yes, situation? There, there was a real class disparity. And I realized, oh, I really am attracted to her. But I think she's officially socially out of my league. Like, I live in a basement. She's about to win her first Emmy. Uh, and I, I was really scared. But a shared sense of humor eventually brought them together. We started doing a lot of bits with each other during rehearsal. And I thought he was really funny. And then one day I was like, wait a minute, is he sexy? What's happening? My plan was working. <laughs> At the time, Offerman had been taking woodworking jobs to make ends meet. Despite acting with prestigious Chicago theater companies like Steppenwolf, Hollywood had been less than welcoming. When you arrive here, the town starts telling you, you are cheap, this is very superficial, you can play a plumber, let me get a look at you, yeah, plumber or rapist. Uh, so, you know, you might as well just get a resume that says Nick Offerman, rapist, plumber. Not long after he started dating Mullally, Offerman managed to nab a small uh, role as a plumber. Uh, someone needed their pipes cleaned out? <laughs> In an episode of Will and Grace. Look closely at red carpet photos from those years, and while all eyes are on Mullally, you can see Offerman lurking in the background. People from the get-go said things to me like, isn't it upsetting to you that Megan is by far the breadwinner in your household? And I was like, no, like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> I've always been a very hard worker, but if your wife happens to be incredibly successful and you don't like that, I believe that means you're dumb. But it wasn't long before Offerman was cast on Parks and Recreation in 2009. This hotel always serves bacon-wrapped shrimp. That's my number one favorite food wrapped around my number three favorite food. And he shot the fame much in the same way his wife had a decade earlier. It was pretty uncanny. Was yeah. that helpful for you to have seen Megan go through almost the exact same arc? Oh, sure. I mean, we have about an 11-year age difference. And so I was a slower developing <laughs> chucklesmith, but in every way, watching Megan go through all of the roller coaster of Will and Grace um, and the things that came with it were a fantastic education. You've aged horribly. 
Today, the couple works together as much as possible. Malali even guest starred as Ron's crazy ex-wife, Tammy, on Parks and Rec. She's near. Hey, Ron. Tammy. We feel bad when people say, why would you ever choose to work with your spouse? Like, it's all I can do to stand my spouse every night for three hours. And we just think, that's so sad. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I like my spouse. Well, we've accomplished our goal, I think. Love is in the air, at least for us. And On tour, the couples found a way too. to keep their relationship healthy. Goodbye, goodbye. By talking and singing about it in front of thousands of people. Let me tell you a little secret. When Megan and I are in our 90s, I'm guessing we won't be crushing each other's bones on the regular anymore. Because of how that would crush all of our bones. <laughs> but we'll still be together because I love the ever-living crap out of this woman. Sweet. And she loves the crap out of me. The end. Ahead, dentist versus lion. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week, a worldwide uproar over the recent killing of Cecil the Lion. Cecil was 13 years old, a huge black-maned lion, and a star attraction at a national park in Zimbabwe. A star, that is, until early July, when a Minnesota dentist, Walter Palmer, with the help of two local hunting guides, used food to lure Cecil outside the protection of the park, where he was hunted down and killed. Faced with angry headlines, at home and abroad, Palmer has gone into hiding. He's issued a statement saying that he believed that the hunt was legal. Unappeased, protesters have left stuffed animals outside Palmer's currently closed dental office. Palmer. While officials in Zimbabwe are calling for his extradition to face criminal charges, as the two local hunting guides already do. We are taking the issues very seriously. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says it is investigating as well, and that it was contacted late in the week by a representative of Walter Palmer. As of late Friday, the British conservation group that has been tracking Cecil with the GPS collar for years had received nearly a half a million dollars in contributions since Cecil's death. All of which, of course, comes too late for Cecil and at a very late hour for all African lions, whose numbers have dropped from an estimated 75,000 in 1980 to fewer than half that today. Ahead, where the stars at night, wow, are big and bright. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. There's nothing like a telescope to bring out the wonders of a starry, starry night. Provided, of course, that you have found a spot free of earthly lights. A spot like the one Barry Peterson found. 
In West Texas, there's not much to see in a vast stretch of emptiness. That is, until the sun calls it a day. And then, up there, is a night sky bursting with stars, a jam-packed canopy of constellations. Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. On most weekends, Ron DiIulio sings about the night sky at a Dallas nightclub. And he doesn't just croon about the moon. He makes his living looking up at the moon and stars, teaching astronomy and spreading the word about every stargazer's worst enemy, bright lights. So we actually call it light pollution. We call it light pollution just like sound pollution. Delio brings his students from the University of North Texas to this particular part of the state where the lights are so few, the stars are so many, captured by his time-lapse photography. I have yet to see a person come out in the night sky, look up at a sky that, that is dark, mm -hmm. or look through a telescope and not go, wow. Mm -hmm. That's never happened. They so always do that. They always do that. In a world where people seem to spend most of their time looking down, there isn't much incentive to look up. City lights block out the night sky. But on this NASA map, there is also an earthbound version of a black hole right down there in West Texas. And it's not by accident, but thanks to men like Bill Wren, a veteran astronomer at McDonnell Observatory, the largest and one of the busiest optical telescopes in North America. It sits atop a West Texas mountain. Now, I know you have a number of nicknames, but my favorite is the Angel of Darkness. What, yes. what does that mean? Uh, well, that's just, uh, I'm the, the light police. Saving the darkness of the night sky is his mission. Using grant money, he offers free light fixtures that aim light down and away from the night sky. Wren and others also helped change building codes to make down lights mandatory in seven counties covering 28,000 square miles. To convince the dubious, Bill offers this example. Van Gogh's Starry Night painted in 1889. When Wren imagines the painting with today's light-polluted skies, it might look more like this. We'd be without Starry Night because Van Gogh would have been without sure. stars. I mean, how many Van Goghs are alive today, you know, that, uh, that won't have that inspiration? There may not be many Van Goghs among the hundreds who come from across America for overnight star parties at the observatory. But still, there are romantics and stargazers all in one, like Adam Antonis. The skies here are really, I mean, they're just beautiful. The darker, the more you could see. And it turns out, darkness is something you can sell. These homes are being built specifically for people who want to live under the dark sky. To help preserve their heavenly view, the development bans street lights and outdoor lights. We come here as astronomers, amateur astronomers, to enjoy the skies without interference from light pollution. Bob Newman came here for a night sky that's still in trances. How many of us are lucky enough to say this? You can read by the light of Venus. You certainly can read by the light of the full moon. 
the Milky Way comes up and it looks like clouds in the sky. You take a look at the moon like this and you, you can say, all right, now look at how beautiful that moon looks. Look how large it is. And, says astronomer Ron Neulio, the moon is just the beginning of exploration. He believes there is still plenty to learn about the universe from gazing at a truly dark night sky. There are a lot of things out there that we don't know about, and that's what's exciting. Maybe we can still discover. We can still be those explorers, and, and that's not over, and that our children and all our descendants will have that opportunity to discover. That's what we need to have. And if you can keep the light pollution away, they could actually stand here and do and some do of it. that. That's right. That's what we hope to do here. Here, one of the last places where modern man can look up and see what our ancient ancestors saw. Trembling, delighting, or just basking in nature's nightlight. Next, the pride of Cuba. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Now that U.S. relations with Cuba are turning over a new leaf, American cigar smokers are hoping that they'll soon be enjoying a new leaf, too. With Mark Strassman now, we're off to Havana. Along Havana's waterfront, no one asks politely before lighting up. No one complains about the smell or the smoke. The annual Abanos Festival is the most cigar-friendly spot on the planet, an international celebration of Cuba's pride, its cigars. Cuban cigars go together. It's like, it's like France and wine. They're one and the same. You think about Cuba, you think about one of these. For two decades, David Savona has written about both for Cigar Aficionado, where he's now executive editor. I mean, here we are in Havana with Havana cigars. I mean, it's, it's the only way to do it. Yeah. We took a drive along Havana's famed Malacón Esplanade, the sort of thing you'd read about in his lifestyle magazine. I don't know, the humidity, the, the sunshine, the open air, the Malacón that we're driving by right now, it's, it just begs for a cigar, in my opinion. Cuban cigars, often called Cubans, come wrapped in mystique. Fidel Castro made them his trademark before quitting for health reasons. Winston Churchill loved the cigars, as did President Kennedy. Before he enacted the trade embargo against Cuba in 1962, JFK stocked his private humidor with 1,200 Petit Upmans, his personal favorite. Today, I can announce that the United States has agreed to formally reestablish diplomatic relations with the Republic of Cuba. On July 1st, President Obama announced an end to the diplomatic isolation of Cuba. On August 14th, the American flag will once again fly above the U.S. Embassy in Havana. The president has also called on Congress to lift the embargo. These steps could once again allow the sale of Cuban cigars in the U.S. Not surprisingly, Savona's magazine has supported an end to the embargo. Will it make a significant difference to, to Cuba in any way? I would think so. We're talking about the world's largest market for premium cigars. 
you know, they've been denied uh, the legal channel to be there for all these years. So certainly it's important for the Cuban industry, the Cuban cigar industry to one day be in the United States. At La Corona, one of Cuba's largest cigar factories, workers hand roll 30,000 cigars a day, 5 million a year. They blend different tobacco leaves for the most famous brands in the world, Cohiba, Monte Cristo, Oyo de Monterey. Each one of these cigars is essentially a sculpture. Mm, absolutely. It's a work of art, very hard to do. You know, imagine if someone gave you a pile of leaves right now and said, turn that into a cigar. You'd have a hard time. I'd have a hard time. Those leaves come from the Pinar del Rio province in western Cuba often considered the world's premier tobacco growing region. When I push here, you can see the oil. Yep. Look at that. Mm -hmm. If a Cuban cigar's soul is in the soil, it's also in 38-year-old Hirochi Robina's blood. The Cuban cigar are the best. But is there a cigar out there that's better than yours? The cigar what? Is there a cigar anywhere in the world? That's... This one? Yeah. No, this one is the best in the world. <laughs> the best in Cuba. So if it is the best in Cuba, it's the best in the world. <laughs> very proud of that cigar. Yeah, I'm very happy. I'm very happy because all inside this cigar is because my grandfather teach me. All the experience of my family is inside this cigar. So your grandfather built most of this? Yes. Yeah. The Robida family has been growing tobacco here since 1845. Hirochi hopes some of it will soon end up in the United States where despite health concerns, cigar sales have almost quadrupled in the last 20 years. United States 45 minute flight. So it's very easy for, for our country to send cigars to the United States. Hello, Hello. Hey, nice hey, meeting you, man, Hirochi. On this day, the United States came to him, a cigar club from Florida. For Marcus Daniel, the trip to the Robina plantation was more than a pilgrimage. Daniel, an American who owns a cigar shop in Naples, has traveled here a dozen times. He and Hirochi Robina see business opportunities emerging in the U.S. The open secret in cigar making is that you've got to have good relationships with the growers. You need the growers. You've got to have the best tobacco. So do you feel as though it's an advantage to have made some of these relationships already? Well, the early bird gets the worm, so uh, we'll see. I feel it's like uh, two lovers that, that are ready to meet, you know. Uh, there's a romance here that's, that, that feels both sides really want it to take place, and, and now we just, it'd be nice to just see it happen. If it happens, the Cuban tobacco industry believes it would dominate the $6.7 billion U.S. cigar market, predicting a 25 to 30 percent share in the first year, and in time, a 70 percent share. Is that realistic or are the Cubans in for a surprise? I think they're not taking a full consideration of how good the cigars made outside of Cuba are today. You know, the cigar of the year this year is Nicaraguan. The cigar of the year a couple of years ago was from the Dominican Republic. There'll be no better time in cigar history to be a cigar smoker than when that Cuban product is one day sold side by side with those from the Dominican, Nicaragua, Honduras, and elsewhere. Legal Cubans have been a long time coming. But nothing about cigars is supposed to feel rushed. And it's good news if you believe the only thing better than a great cigar is another one. Next, a life in pictures, lost and found. 
I read the obits. If Seriously? I'm, yes, if I'm not in it, I'll have breakfast. <laughs> and later, the legendary Carl Reiner. I can live another hour. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A love story in living color is the story Steve Hartman has to tell this morning. In Fairport, New York, along the Erie Canal. How about we walk? Town historian Bill Perret has made it his mission to connect people with their history. In about 1890. But safe to say he has never found a more direct and powerful connection than he did the day the films arrived. Someone found these in an attic. Old 16-millimeter home movies from the 1930s, labeled Kodachrome Experiment. Yeah, I was intrigued. So I took the projector, I took the films, and I started to watch. And I loved what I saw. I saw scenes of our community, and they were in color. They were some of the very first color home movies. But what intrigued Bill even more was this woman. He says whoever she was, the cameraman was clearly smitten. And from there, I started doing some research. He found out the photographer, a guy named Bob Kramer, went to work for Kodak Labs right out of high school. And that girl was his high school sweetheart, Leona Sharp. She would be 96 years old. If she was alive. And I wondered. He did find an address and went there. A woman came to the door. She opened the door three inches. And I told her we had these films. And the door opened a little wider. Literally and figuratively. Yes. <laughs> And then she said, wait, and she disappeared. She came back about a minute later, holding her wedding picture. And she said, come in. Here's what Bill learned. Bob and Leona got married right after Bob joined the Air Force. A few days after the wedding, he left to learn how to fly a B-17 and then got sent to Europe to fight in World War II. On the way, he actually flew his plane over Leona's house. This is a picture of it. And then he wiggled the wings she flew at us, and then he was off. You never saw him again? No. Leona says losing him was hard, but finding him again has been wonderful. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> After more than 70 years, Leona's love story came rushing back in living color. And even though she did get married again for a while, we got the sense that this was her true love. Not from any particular picture on the screen, just the flicker in her eye. So it was Custer's last Next. You want a scalp to hang on your belt? <laughs> Comic legend Carl Reiner. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Oh, hey, everybody, here's my old friend, Alan Brady. Hi, gang. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. What are we playing here, living statues? <laughs> Carl Reiner played an egotistical TV star in the classic comedy series The Dick Van Dyke Show. And that's just one of the roles Reiner has been playing on screen and off during a lifetime that now spans 93 years. Tracy Smith talks to an entertainment legend. First thing in the morning, before I have coffee, 
I read the obits. Seriously? I'm, yes, if I'm not in it, I'll have breakfast. No, I was At nearly 93, Carl Reiner is in the kind of shape people half his age might envy. All the vital signs are perfect. I could live another hour. <laughs> he only sounds like he's on borrowed time. The truth is, though, you're still productive. You're still writing. Yes, yes. I mean, it's not like you're waiting around. No, no. I, I wake up every morning uh, ha anxious to get to my, what do you call it? We used to call it a typewriter, my computer. By any name, that keyboard is busy. Reiner has just finished a new book about one of his best-known creations. And the 12-time Emmy winner has a lot more to look back on. Welcome, America, and hi there, everybody. Once again, we present This Is Your Story. As you know, each Carl Reiner didn't create TV, but let's just say he was in the delivery room. I like you. I like you because you got spunk there, Kit. You ain't spunky. As a writer and performer, he was a giant among giants. His co-writers on Sid Caesar's shows alone included Larry Gelbart, creator of the TV show MASH, comic genius Mel Brooks, and playwright Neil Simon. Back in the early days of television, and we should mention, you were on TV before you owned a TV? Yes, we didn't have a TV when I did the show of shows, and uh, we finally got a little seven-inch set, and the kids used to watch it. And, uh, Robbie was far four or five or six, and I and he said, "Say hello to me." And I said, "I can't say hello on television, but I'll when I do this, when I do when I put my tie up in the in the finale, you'll know when I say we're all saying goodbye. That's for you." Every night you, you would do this, yes, and that meant good yeah, night, you're right. Robbie. Yeah. But after years of writing sketch comedy, Reiner had an idea for a show of his own a sitcom about a New York City comedy writer, like him, who lived in the suburbs with an adorable family, like his. Your son dislikes you. What are you saying? How can he dislike me? I'm his father. Some children have been known to hate their fathers. He's only six years old. He doesn't know me long enough to hate me. <laughs> Head of the family, it was okay, just okay. It didn't work. The pilot flopped. But Reiner had written 13 full episodes, and producer Sheldon Leonard thought of a way he could make it all work. You might remember Sheldon Leonard from It's a Wonderful Life as the bartender who tells it straight. Hey, look, I'm the boss. You want a drink or don't you? He says, we'd love to talk to you about these episodes. I said, fellas, I said, I don't want to fail with it the second time. You didn't want to do it? No, he, and he said, Sheldon, is a good impression. He says, you won't fail? We'll get a better actor to play you. And he suggested Dick Van Dyke. The show, which ran for five seasons on CBS, was a major hit. It was an accident. An accident? So it was Custer's last stand. You want a scalp to hang on your belt? <laughs> Reiner wound up playing the pompous boss, Alan Brady. But the rest of the show mirrored his life. In fact, Mary Tyler Moore's Laura Petrie was inspired by the real-life woman Reiner went home to every night. As a young GI during World War II, he'd met Estelle LeBoste, an artist eight years his senior. I had a lot of hair in those days, black hair, black wavy. Hair. We sat down with them in 2007. No, no, he was really good looking, but, but typical. I said, tall, dark, and handsome. 
When you looked at her, what did you think? Nice figure. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I was 20. They married in 1943 and had three children, Robbie, Annie, and Lucas. It don't mean nothing if it ain't got that swing. For a showbiz family, the Reiners were pretty normal. Robbie, the future director, had a pretty good arm. So did Mom. And in the summer, they'd all hit the beach, sometimes with longtime family friend Mel Brooks. How often do you guys see each other now? At least six, seven times a week. <laughs> he sits right there. We watch television. Many, many hundreds of years ago, most men had more than one wife. Yeah. Did you practice polygamy in those days? I never practiced it. I was perfect at it. <laughs> but there's nothing on TV like this anymore. The 2,000-year-old man was an impromptu sketch gone wild, with Reiner interviewing Brooks as the oldest man in the world. What was it like to have seven wives? Terrible. It was absolutely the worst thing that ever happened to me. Why? I used to come home from work and I'd open that door and I'd hear, you're late for shopper, 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 shopper. As ranking old timer, I gotta say, I just can't do it. At my age, I think I'm in the right to be selfish. Reiner himself was the oldest man in the star-packed Ocean's Eleven gang. But his biggest box office hits were behind the camera. And action. As director of comedies like The Jerk and Oh God, starring George Burns. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help me, me. So help you, you. If it pleases the court, and even if it doesn't please the court, I'm God, Your Honor. You clearly are a guy who likes to make people happy. Is that a tough trait to have when you're a director? No, as a matter of fact, it's a wonderful trait to have. You can get the best out of people if they're happy and not worried or not uh, frightened that they're going to make a mistake. Robbie does exactly the same. Don't demand anything of anybody. You hire actors who you think are going to be right for the part, and, and then you let them go. Yes! 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 Maybe that's why Rob Reiner cast his mom Estelle for a small but climactic moment. Oh, oh God. I'll have what she's having. It had to be you. But what really got Estelle Reiner excited was singing. And as Carl wrote in his memoir, it was something his wife loved until the day she died in 2008. Why did you decide to write about the last moments of her life? Because it was so beautiful. Estelle died in 94, when she was 94, and the last year of her life was lying in bed. It was, she, all of her, all, she always thought she was going to go back and sing, and she couldn't really get out of bed. She had major problems. But, her, but she was here. Her mind was always there, and at the last moment, she wasn't even breathing. A breath every minute, a little something, and I, we touched it with nothing. You know, I said, let her, she should go out hearing something the lovely, like her last album, you know. So I put on, and the first song was A hey, You're Adorable, and that was playing. I said, play it up loud. A you're adorable, B you're so beautiful, C you're a cutie full of charm. Maybe she'll hear it as she's going. And, and we played it loud. And one of the hospice nurses says, 
Oh, she has such a lovely, sweet voice. And Lucas, my son, went right up to his mother. He said, Ma, you hear what she said? She says, you have a lovely, sweet voice. And Estelle said, and passed away. Didn't aspirate it, but her lips, we all saw it. Then gone. I had to write about that because it was a good way to go, a good way to go. Once I built a railroad to the sun with brick and ribbon and lime. And music still keeps him going. Reiner sings on his daily walks, and at one point even considered a career as a crooner. I was six years old. I said, I want to be an Irish tenor, I told my father. And he said, you can be a Jewish tenor, but he can sing Irish songs. We're thankful Carl Reiner chose to make us laugh instead. Down the road that leads back. To that tumble down shack, to that tumble down shack, enough loaned. Now we got it. Use any part of it. <laughs> Ahead. Here's looking at the new Motoramic Chevrolet. Going topless. Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Driving topless is one of the season's great joys, as Mo Rocca can show us firsthand. You know, there's nothing better on a summer day than driving with the top down, wind in my hair, in a Mustang convertible. And while the lure of a convertible might be its sex appeal, just think of Cary Grant and Grace Kelly cruising along the Riviera and to catch a thief. Slow down. And let them catch us? The convertible's beginnings were decidedly less glamorous. The earliest cars were all convertibles. This Model T has the top on, but it was mostly driven without. Plus, there's no windshield or side windows. Hence, the protective gear. Matt Anderson, curator of transportation at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, says the convertible has had more ups and downs than the car's top on a partly cloudy day. In the beginning, uh, open cars are about affordability, but you start to see things change as enclosed cars get mass produced and become more affordable. And then the convertibles become more of the domain of the rich, so everything kind of turns around 180. By 1936, the open top car accounted for less than 1% of automobile sales. So the convertible is essentially dead by the 30s, it's dead or on the way out. There are still wealthy drivers who can afford to get whatever they want. And what kind of convertibles are those? Those are big cars at this time. You know, these are the luxury automobiles with the eight-cylinder, 12-cylinder, in some cases, engines that uh, expensive vehicles, not cheap. They may not have been cheap, but they were useful for politicians like President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who toured around in a Lincoln convertible, also known as the Sunshine Special. The next shift we start to see is during World War II when a lot of the young Americans see in England and France and other countries these little roadster cars with soft convertible tops and their cars just for fun. In fact, by 1950, every American car maker had a convertible in its lineup, 33 models in all. Here's looking at the new Motoramic Chevrolet. More than a new car, a new concept of low-cost motoring. From 1962 through 1966, convertibles accounted for 6% of car sales. But by the 1970s, convertibles hit the skids. 
for three reasons, safety, security, and the faster pace of life. And people aren't cruising down the road at 35, 40 miles an hour anymore. They're going 55, 60, 70 miles an hour. And that gentle breeze in your hair becomes something like a hurricane when you're moving at that speed. Nowadays, only a tiny number of convertibles are sold each year. But the convertible will never go away, will it? I don't think the convertible will ever truly die because there'll always be this segment of drivers that just want to drive for the sheer fun and thrill of it. As long as there's one man going through a midlife crisis, there's one convertible to be sold. There's your customer. featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The Commerce Department reported last week that the economy is now growing at an annual rate of just 2.3%. Anyone have any idea why the economy has been growing so slowly for so long? Anyone? Our contributor Ben Stein thinks he knows part of the answer. One of the mysteries of modern economics is why there's been a stall in the rate of increase of worker productivity. Worker productivity is how much each worker produces per unit of time. It rose very rapidly for decades after 1941, and recently the rate of rise has been tepid. There have been many suggested explanations for this slowdown. Changing composition of the labor force, Far Eastern competition, allegedly excessive regulation. None of these has been proved. I'd like to suggest another one, the cell phone or the smartphone, if you like. Virtually unknown a couple of decades ago, the cell phone or smartphone is now a virtual body part. I did a bit of research on my phone, of course, and apparently estimates vary wildly, but the average American spends a large part of the day on his or her cell phone. Reports say that Americans check their cell phones. This is, this is just checking them roughly 150 times per day. There are literally billions of texts sent per day in the USA. The ordinary American sends roughly 40 texts per day by some estimates. Others are much higher. The phone is the lifeblood for Americans now. Now, to be sure, some of these calls are about business and are productive. But if half the calls are personal, that's an immense slice of the day gone. Don't get me wrong. These calls sometimes produce happiness. They're not just waste motion, but they don't produce anything you can count. They're an extremely expanded version of water cooler gossip, but hugely expanded. If this many people, there are nearly 300 million cells in the USA, are on the line this much, some of it has to come out of production. If we're gossiping, we're not working. And the smartphone, in many ways, is just a gossip machine. Gossip is fun, but it ain't money, and again, you can't count it. Commentary from Ben Stein. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.